Today on the Ward Preacher Podcast, studying to be quiet, despise not prophesies, and apostosia. I'm Brett Jensen, and this is the Ward Preacher Podcast. Uh, this week, we're looking at First and Second Thessalonians. Um, let's go ahead and dig right in to our first point, studying to be quiet. Here's a passage from chapter 4 of First Thessalonians, uh, verses 11 and 12. It reads, And that ye study to be quiet, and to do your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. So there's a little bit, um, there are parts of this that are self-explanatory, so let's start there. Everyone has a responsibility to be self-sufficient. That's to do our own business, work with our own hands, and uh, to be honest in our dealings with other people, that we may lack for nothing. We have a responsibility to be self-sufficient so that we can, in our honest dealings with others, take care of ourselves, not lack. We should work hard, be honest, and be able to take care of ourselves and our families. Uh, that, I think, is the obvious part of this council. The less obvious is how it begins here. Why are we studying to be quiet? What's that about? All right, there are probably several correct answers, but I'd like to emphasize this perspective. All people are victims of some wrong or another. We probably don't need to make ourselves out to be more victimized than we already are. All people are the perpetrators of some wrong or another. We probably don't need to perpetuate wrath, envy, greed, or any other vice. In other words, um, we should kind of stay a little quiet, stay in our lane. It's not good to compel others to try and do things. I'm a victim, you have to do this. Or, or to actually perpetrate some wrong and force people to do things. Now, there are cases when you may, when compulsion is a requirement. If someone has committed a crime, we may compel them to go to prison or pay a fine or, or something similar to that. But as a general rule, compulsion is a last resort. And so being quiet, this council is about not worrying about other people's issues, it's focusing on ourselves. Clean your own house quietly before railing on the flaws of someone else's house. This is a call to avoid hypocrisy and to avoid making big victims of ourselves. We should focus on what we're supposed to do and do it study to be quiet. 
All right. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, there are a series of short verses. Now, when I was younger, when I was uh, attending seminary, one of the things that we would uh, periodically do is present a scripture at the beginning as sort of a devotional, a spiritual thought type thing. And uh, I mean, I, I was a teenage boy, and so I wanted to do something that was funny or interesting, not necessarily spiritual at all. And one of the things that uh, always make, made me smile were verses that were really short. And of course, I, I love knowing the answers to, you know, what's the shortest verse in all of the scriptures? It's John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. But imagine my delight when I came across 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, from which there are a bunch of these little short verses that I could uh, use, and that's my whole spiritual thought. For example, rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, quench not the spirit, despise not prophesyings. Those are four verses, actual entire verses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, eventually, even though my goal as a youth was not necessarily always spiritual, I, over time, have come to find meaning in these brief proverbs, and I'd like to discuss that. First, rejoice evermore. At what point is a man grateful enough? At what point should a man think that he has given enough thanks to God and paid his debt? No matter what good we accomplish, none of it will compare to the titanic list of gifts that God has heaped upon us. Thinking on that list regularly is as medicine to heal the pains that come from envy, greed, and pride. We should rejoice evermore. We don't need to stop being grateful. We should continue to be happy with what God has given us. The next verse, pray without ceasing. Now think about this. If you had access to someone who could answer any question or help with any problem, and not only could, but was eager to offer answers and help, at what point would the smart choice be to say, I think I've asked enough. I've gotten all the answers I really need. Only an idiot believes that he has gleaned all that can be obtained from that fount of every blessing. There is always a need to pray. There's always a need to find out more, to grow closer to the one who has all of the answers and who can help with any problem. I think it's not a coincidence that a part of the covenants we make at baptism and in the sacrament of the Lord's Suppers are to always remember him. All right, 
The next verse, quench not the spirit. After praying to the God of heaven, it is good for a person to try to act with truth and obedience with whatever they have. Um, But what is the point in asking a question if we never listen for the answer or are unwilling to heed the guidance that comes? It's then just a speech to the ceiling rather than an appeal to the God of heaven. What task or errand is it, even if we're busy after we pray and we're forming the habit of prayer, which which can be good, even if you're not in the habit of finding some time to listen for answers, um, there is value in getting the, in the habit of praying. But ultimately, we should ask the, the question, what task or errand is it that should take precedence over the voice of God? Are we quenching his spirit? Like, yeah, yeah, I know, I'll, I'll get to that, but I've got these other things I have to do. I think it's very important as we're thinking about a God that not only asks us to pray, but promises that if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Or that Jesus himself who promised, ask and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. At what point do we need to say, well, maybe I need to open the door. Maybe I need to not quench what God is trying to give me. Not put that aside, but listen. All right, the next passage. Despise not prophesyings. Now, this is one, this is a verse that has become more and more pertinent. There are voices, even within the church, that are not so very different from the voices of those who rebelled in ancient Israel, always finding fault with the prophets of God and believing that their counsel would be better in some other area. There are people today who scream in shrill voices that the church or that the prophet should stay out of politics, quote-unquote. Well, even though that may sound a little bit appealing, this is essentially what Pharaoh did to Moses. You know, I'm the Pharaoh, stay out of my political affairs. These are my slaves. I don't care about you worshiping in the wilderness to your God. I care that you're doing the job that our society needs you to do, which is slave labor. This is what Ahab, King Ahab, did with Elijah and Elisha. You know, art thou he that troubleth Israel? Uh, accused Ahab, uh, accused, Ahab accused Elijah of doing when the drought came because of the wickedness of the people in Israel. 
Uh, he's still blaming this. You know, why don't you stay out of our business? You caused our problems. You were the source of our pain. Uh, and uh, Elisha as well. Uh, but essentially, you could also look at the example of almost every king of Judah after Josiah um, and how they treated the prophet Jeremiah. I sometimes wonder if Jeremiah couldn't have done better had he employed some reverse psychology, because they literally did the opposite of everything he asked. Please repent. They didn't. Well, don't fight against the Babylonians. They did. Don't believe that Egypt is going to be your ally in this. They did. And then after Nebuchadnezzar came through and destroyed Jerusalem, he told the people that were left, you know, let's stay in Jerusalem. And they didn't do that either. They just found problems with every little thing that the prophets had to say. How dare you speak about this? This is a political issue. We know better than you. It all resulted in ruin. It all resulted in ruin. In the days of false prophets, of confusion, of strife, these last days of tribulation, isn't it a good idea to treasure prophesying, particularly when it comes from apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's not despise their prophesyings. If they tell us that we need to do better, just, just maybe. We need to do better. If they tell us that something is not a moral practice, just maybe we should consider their advice before complaining that they didn't prophesy about one thing or another, or that their prophecies have hurt our feelings, or any of this other nonsense that, that we sometimes hear. This counsel of Paul still stands, despise not prophesyings. On this same subject, let's move to the topic of that falling away. These verses are in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the first three verses that read, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. All right, there's a lot to unpack here. The, the term falling away that's, that's rendered in the King James English in these verses is translated into English from the Greek term apostosia which is the source of the term apostasy. Now, apparently, uh, what we can glean from this, there were false letters that were supposedly from Paul that had led some people to believe that Christ had already come. 
that the second coming had already happened. There are people even today who kind of subscribe to this idea. Now, Paul was speaking on this subject as a means of helping the saints uh, to understand that Christ had not already come, that they should continue to work and prepare for his return, to follow the, the counsel of Christ himself to watch and pray. The apostasy is mentioned here as a sign that will precede his second coming. Some people saw these signs. There are a few quotes in the, the manual, the Come Follow Me manual for families and individuals that I, I thought were really good. Here are some reformers uh, and some of the things that they wrote. Martin Luther said, I have sought nothing beyond reforming the church in conformity with the Holy Scriptures. And then he goes on to say, I simply say that Christianity has ceased to exist among those who should have preserved it. Roger Williams, uh, another theologian in, uh, in America, wrote this, The apostasy hath so far corrupted all that there can be no recovery out of that apostasy till Christ send forth new apostles to plant churches anew. Erasmus, another theologian, uh, a little bit earlier, he was in uh, in the Enlightenment period, the 1400s. Uh, he wrote this: "Everything is now so entangled with these questions of doctrine and decrees that we dare not even hope to call the world back to true Christianity." Now, even though this is like a satirical piece, he's. He, there was something serious about calling the world back to true Christianity because it wasn't there. That's the implication. They didn't have it. It had been lost. Now, some people do maintain that there is an unbroken chain between Christ and Christian churches today, even though they totally disagree with one another on fundamental aspects of faith. They divide from one another and somehow maintain that oh, there's no falling away. Even though they fundamentally disagree, neither of them have fallen away, apparently. Some others believe that reformers in the reformation of the Catholic Church helped to recover from this falling away. But if that's true, from where did they receive such authority? How do we know that these reformers were of God and not of men? Or did they just act on their own behalf? How could they, uh, how could they reform to something that's correct without having that direct line with God? And, perhaps as important, why don't these reformers agree with one another? Ultimately, the Christianity that emerged in the days of Emperor Constantine was not the faith that was organized by Jesus Christ with apostles and prophets. It was a collection of people with various motivations that justified their opinions using the writings of apostles and prophets. Now, while many of these 
men were good men and strived for truth and righteousness and correctness. They were still men and they acted on their own judgment. The only true solution to this falling away, the apostasia, is that there must be a restoration that Jesus Christ, who was utterly rejected by the world, must be the architect not only of his own resurrection, the restoration of his life, but also the restoration of his church. The timing for this restoration is given in the Bible, in Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel chapter 2. It is to come in the days of the kingdoms that come out of the Roman Empire. The legs of iron were subsequently followed by feet, part iron and part clay. Kingdoms that were partly strong and partly broken, which is a very accurate description of those Christian kingdoms that hung around and stopped the Moors from invading in Spain and stopped the Ottoman Empire at Lepanto and, and were partly strong, but also fought amongst one another and were partly broken. Those kingdoms are now gone. They've been replaced by other nations, which means, if we are to believe this vision, the kingdom of God must now be on the earth. Where can we find it? There are some clues. The Book of Mormon represents a restoration of scriptural truth. The visions of Joseph Smith and other apostles and prophets represent the restoration of messengers of God. And the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints represents the restoration of the kingdom as was prophesied in the Bible. In other words, the night of apostasy is over, and modern-day men are called of God, just like Moses and Samuel and Elijah were, and they can help us to know the truths of his kingdom. The Proverbs that Paul taught teach us to be persistent in our faith and to be persistent in our belief in his power, to be confident, to rejoice to be thankful. Let's study to be quiet. Let's study to be disciples of Jesus Christ. We appreciate all the support for the Ward Preacher podcast. Next week, we will be looking at First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. We'll have a discussion on what the true church looks like. Of course, Continue to study those elements that we did not touch on during our podcast. There's a lot of stuff in uh, both of these books to the Thessalonians. Uh, study those independently. And as always, fight on.